Welcome back, everyone. This is Discussing Who. I am Kyle Jones, and I want to start by welcoming back Lee Shackelford. Lee, how are you? I'm pretty good, man. Pretty good for somebody hunkered down in a pandemic. How about you? I can't complain. I think I'm hunkered down in the pandemic, too. Kind of going a little stir-crazy, but, uh, you know, that's to be expected. But that's why we have podcasts. That's why we have Doctor Who podcast, and that's yep. why I'm able to say also, welcome back, Clarence Brown. Hey, man. Uh, glad to be on again, as always, and hunkered down as well. So I'm doing fine and, you know, ready to talk this out. Also hunkered down with us, if you are listening, chances are, if you're listening in 2020, in March, April, May, Probably not March because this is already in May. So you can't go back in time because unless we're literally can't? time lords, maybe, but maybe we're not. But anyway, if you are listening to us, it's 2020. Chances are we're in some stage of a global pandemic. So I want to thank everyone for joining us when you're listening to us, whenever that is. Thank you. We appreciate you spending your time, however long this episode is. We appreciate it. Thank you for being here. And as a way of showing our thanks, we're just going to continue doing what we do because that's why you're here. So, gentlemen, are you ready for some news? Because I actually have some pretty cool news. Oh, excellent. Yeah, let's do it. This comes from Big Finish, and it kind of turns or kind of connects to the pandemic that I was just talking about. There is a Big Finish, and it's the first full cast full-length Doctor Who audio drama to have been recorded entirely during lockdown. So basically, after this whole coronavirus, social distancing, lockdown, stay-at-home occurred, and it's going to star Tom Baker, Louise Jameson, and John Leeson as the fourth Doctor, Leela, and K-9. And the story is called Doctor Who, Shadow of the Sun. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, what fun. What I, fun. I just think it's cool the fact that, you know, even like what we were saying we're doing, this is a release for us for being creative, connecting ourselves with the outside world and with each other. Mm-hmm. They're doing that too. And I think that is so cool. Yeah. I just, every time um, a, a classic Who cast gets together to do something like this, I'm reminded of the, the power of uh, this marvelous power of the imagination and of audio drama that as we listen to the three of them, what we, if we choose to, what we can have in our minds, in our mind's eye is uh, the fourth doctor and Leela and K9 as they were 40 years ago, right? Yep. And we'll, that's who we'll see as we hear them. It's just, it's wonderful. And, you know, and it's uh, because it's radio, you know, K9 can can fly or whatever we want to, to have happen here. Indeed. And you know what? <laughs> Since we are talking about pandemics and we're talking about audio, I think we would be remiss if we do not mention something that all three of us have participated in. And Lee, I'll let you mention that there is a podcast about washing hands that we've been talking about. <laughs> and we were actually literally talking about it before we went to recording. So would you Just like to a few tell, minutes ago? Yep. So would you like to tell everybody what that is? Uh, we've talked about it before, but I just want to point people to the website. Uh, and it is get this get this address listen rents repeat podcast.com it's called listen rents repeat and uh 
And the whole idea is to to do things that are uh, little, tiny, tiny little stories that are the recommended length for washing your hands. If it's possible, you've come into contact with something that's come into contact with something that's come into contact with that may have the coronavirus. So wash your hands, folks, and be distracted while you're doing it by listening to Listen, Rinse, Repeat. Awesome. How's that? You could not have done that even any better than Lee Shackelford. You, you'd think I'd practiced it, which I have not. But there <laughs> you go. Cool. Well, I think you will both enjoy this because I know you're both readers. And I think the next piece of news you will find enjoyable because I'm actually going to take a look at this. This is from Gizmodo, and it says that all Doctor Who Series 12 scripts are available online. And there's a link that gives us to go to that, and I will put that in our show notes. Wow. Yeah, that is really cool. How often do, do they do that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. How often do they do that, Lee? Are both of you? Uh, and and is this something that we see from other television shows, or is this kind of exclusive to something Doctor Who's doing? I'm wondering if it's entirely legal because um, they usually guard those with you know, pretty. Uh, they're pretty proprietary about it. They published a book that I bought largely because I wanted to see Midnight on paper. Uh, as it was written. And uh, so it was the scripts from the Donna Noble years. Yeah, but that that was a licensed BBC item. But uh, a lot of what you find out on the web are transcripts where people or software have literally just written down what's said on the screen. That's not a screenplay. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I wonder. Now, these I are on the BBC site, though. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's legit then, man. They wouldn't. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Yep. I missed that part. Yeah. That's that's a very important distinction. No, I, yes. I just clicked the end. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is, that is cool. And there's also some video links to go to that too. You know, up above the actual scripts. So that would be cool to read just to see how they break down things like the finale, all of that good stuff. Hmm. Very cool. time for our reenactments. Here we go. Yeah, right. Guy can play the doctor. Who, who, do I, who do I get to play again? The doctor. Unfortunately, this one doesn't have a recorder, so, you know, mm. bomber. Darn. Okay. I can't find it. Yeah. All righty. So, gentlemen, are you ready to actually get into the review? Oh, yeah. Uh, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well. So, that means I get to say, and if this is the first time you've been, ever listened to an episode of Discussing Who... Just know that this is one of my very all-time most favorite parts of doing this podcast, which is when I get to say, if you have not seen this episode, which is Spearhead from Space, if you've not seen Spearhead from Space, put us on pause, go out, watch the episode, come back, because from this moment forward, spoilers. 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 Alrighty, the spoiler warning has gone out, and we are back to review Spearhead from Space. This is the first story of the seventh season of Doctor Who, airing in four parts between the 3rd and the 24th of January, 1970. The story marks the transition from black and white to colorized format and introduces John Pertwee as the third Doctor. 
So Clarence, I want to go with you first. Summary mm. view. What did you think of this story? I did not like it at all. <laughs> it, I don't, uh, it just didn't pique my interest. Didn't keep me engaged. I do like the exploration of an alien coming to earth. I thought that was interesting. Uh, but beyond that, I have to say I was pretty bored with it. Uh, what about you guys? All right. Lee Shackelford. It It is not an action packed uh, four episodes. It's a, uh... Many people complain that uh, it only gets interesting once the Autons start killing people, which is in the last episode. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's hard. It's it suffers from the thing that that often happens with the uh, that you know has happened um, you know in later years that uh, a regeneration story has got a lot of stuff to unpack, and this one isn't just introducing the Third Doctor, but it's introducing Liz Shaw and the Autons. And really getting us a, the best look at unit that we've had so far. And, you know, it's just a lot to do. There's a lot of stuff to cover. And a lot of the stories of this period are kind of corporate espionage stories. And I always wonder how, how many little kids were fascinated by that. You know, because I, I, I find it a drag, <laughs> even though I feel like I, I'm old enough to know what's going on, you know. Um, uh, guys at desk yelling over their desks at uh, at people is just is is one of the things about classic who that always gets on my nerves. Uh, so uh, it's too bad. It's too bad. It certainly does have its moments, but some of it is about production too. And I want to get into that later yeah. too, just for people who don't know, because because it looks like crap, and and there's a good reason why. So you know, but we'll we'll save that for later. <laughs> I'm going to agree with you guys. This, I didn't realize how much there was to be bored with until <laughs> Clarence made the comment this afternoon about watching <laughs> the last episode of the War Games. And then before we started recording, I went back and watched the last story of the War Games. I rem was just immediately astonished at how captivated I was with that episode and where I was watching but wasn't engaged in Spearhead from Space for most of the story that didn't revolve around the moments, you know, air quotes, the moments that, mm -hmm. you know, you're looking at from a fan. I I was kind of bored with about half of it, to be brutally honest. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned, you know, the last the episode 10 of War Games. It is so good. It's yeah. so good, man. <laughs> right. It it it, it yeah. manages to hit all the points that I find repeated in New Who with the leaving of companions, how that impacts you, and then just what happens to the doctor by the end of this. Um, you know, is one of those generations that feels hard to cope with. And then we get this. <laughs> Right. Right between the eyes. <sighs> and, and, you know, I'm not trying to draw this as a parallel, but there's no other way to do it but then, than to draw this parallel. This is a situation where you have the cast and, you know, the main cast, the doctor, they all leave and you're replacing with a new doctor, a new logo, a new companion. I, I am 
obviously, you know, referring to series 11, but in also I could be referring to series five because the same thing happened with Matt Smith's first series. Mm. All that said, I think that is a jar to the viewer. Whereas maybe when you have a companion as a holdover between Dr. This and next Dr. Coming, it creates a little bit of continuity so it flows a little bit better. Now, was it new showrunners as well, or was it the same? Do we know? Yeah, there's a producer who was changing hands, and um, he was going to stay on until they got the color series underway. But So he's the one who cast John Pertwee, sort of was overseeing all this stuff, and inherited a mess because um, once the BBC had committed to doing some of these shows in color, it wasn't just Doctor Who, it was all kinds of shows that they were all going to do in color. The corporate kind of went to the the cameramen who were all in a union and said, um, so there's a lot to learn about these color cameras, um, but we're not going to pay you the time it's going to take to learn it. You'll have to do that in your own time. And these guys, as a group, said, ah, and left. Hmm. And with the season yet to be shot, you know, all of these shows that were you know getting ready to launch their new seasons in color, all the commercials have been running and everything. <laughs> So um, this producer on Doctor Who, he said he kind of looked around and said, well, the only people who are still producing, you know, visual content for the, the network right now are the are the news people who shoot things on 16 millimeter film. And so they contracted with the, the BBC film unit to shoot this episode and only spearhead from space on 16 millimeter film, which had the advantage of being upscalable years later. But meanwhile... It has that dingy look of everything from the 70s shot on 16 millimeter film. Yeah. It's, it's just, to me, it just, everything just looks kind of grungy. Yeah. And it's, 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 and it's, it's not their fault. They, <laughs> they just, it's 16 millimeter film. And I, I was laughing actually when uh, we get our first look at Liz Shaw, not laughing at her, but, um, because the camera's really compact, if there's no dialogue, you can like sit in the passenger seat of a car and shoot somebody in, in the back seat. So a lot of people were really excited about stuff like that because you couldn't do that with the great big you know video cameras in the studio, right? So so really for the first time, we're going to get a shot of somebody uh, just riding in the back seat of a car going. But uh, then they had this perky music over it, and I thought this looks exactly like documentaries of the time <laughs> that you expect a voiceover to say this is lovely Liz Shaw she's on her way to <laughs> become a scientific mm -hmm. advisor for UNIT that's right the United Nations Intelligence Task Force Miss Shaw is just <laughs> as brilliant as she is comely that's why you know I, <laughs> keep going that was entertaining and, and here they are now so was 16 millimeter like um mostly just used for documentaries at that time because uh, because initially i will say that i thought it felt i thought the difference felt good to me at mm -hmm. first but it didn't seem to persist throughout the the four episodes if that makes any sense because I, I like you I, I, that shot of her, of her in the car i feel like yeah. oh this might feel like something from that time that you know or mm -hmm. at least how i vision it would feel you know that's right Oh, yeah. If you've seen any of the <laughs> documentaries made here or there at that time, I mean, 16 millimeter was sort of the uh, it, it was the favored uh, film camera of uh, of uh, war correspondence, you know, because the cameras are relatively compact for a movie camera. 
and and so you can you can put it in your knapsack and you know get out of the battlefield and and, and shoot stuff like that. And then after the war, you know they were adapted for that kind of uh, documentary. You know, anywhere where you need, you may need to get into the backseat of a car with somebody and shoot, which you just couldn't do with video cameras of the day. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and it's why the show had often shot on film when they were outdoors. There's a Monty Python's Flying Circus sketch where they, they play with the fact that uh, inside the studio, they're always on video and outside, they're always on film. So there's some guys inside and they open the door and look outside and they say, my God, we're on film. And they close the door and come back inside. <laughs> I think we're surrounded. <laughs> How do we get out? Um, yeah. But so, yeah, this show ends up being shot on a narrow gauge, grainy film that – the shot by newsmen who were who were really you know great at going out in the field and capturing stuff but but recording studio quality sound um dealing with the 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 the, the lighting challenges of being inside a real hospital mm. you know and, and making it look like something presentable for tv and not a film about what it's like to be inside this hospital you know <laughs> yeah it's, it, it's just it, it's just not what they were it, it's not what they were trained or what they were equipped to do. That that first little interview across uh, uh, the brigadier's desk where he's talking to Liz for what seems like an hour, I, I, I really would like to go back in time and go there and find out where the microphone is because it's not over either of them. And I don't know why it's shot that way, but the audio is, is – it's just laughable. It's, it's just – we wouldn't let this podcast go out if it sounded like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's in an episode of Doctor Who, you know. Do I just remember, just just for remembering, one of us did try to uh, change his voice on the very first episode. That's all I'm saying. There you go. Um, you know, this actually brought up an interesting thing that I meant to ask when we were doing one of the previous black and white videos. And I thought it would be a good time to ask this question now. But before I ask my question, I'll comment on something Clarence said. I felt also that it seemed to clean up a little bit, like the the graininess seemed to be not as noticeable toward the end of the story. And I'm hearing you guys talk, and I'm wondering, is that because, A, we got used to it as just from watching it and you just became accustomed to it? B, those cameramen did start to get used to recording those type of scenes as they shot those scenes. Let's just assume they were in sequence. Or C, maybe a combination of both. Yeah, I, I think it's all of the above. And we were spending a lot more time indoors where there – I mean, if it was a set that was lit for video, that wouldn't be bad for film. True. It, it wouldn't be ideal, but, you know, so we like we're inside these laboratories and so on and the basic unit and things like that. And the uh, and the, finally, the last Auton laboratory where the guy has the TV screen with the giant space anus on it. You know, that's <laughs> so. So before we get to the back end of this story, uh, <laughs> I literally want to ask about the techniques for black and white tell me if i'm wrong here but weren't there certain colors that you could and could not use to be transferred into film or tape or whatever it was but be presented in black and white yeah there are some colors that just don't render well in, in a grayscale film um in the in the silent in the you know the silent movie era um some uh People used to um, wear goggles that would um, almost 
give you give the, the person looking through the glasses a, a black and white view so they could see what it was going to look like on film even into the 60s uh, it was not unusual for uh, uh, tv directors and cameramen and scenic designers to have a a, a piece of gel that they could hold up uh, you know just a plastic sheet that they could hold up in front of their eyes and look through it at the set to see what it was going to look like on a black and white tv mm, okay um, and yeah, and sometimes you would, you know, you get a nasty shock. You go, wow, those two things look exactly alike. <laughs> They're supposed to be contrasting. Oh, okay, let's paint that a different color. But yeah, the story that everybody knows is that that's why Boris Karloff's uh, Frankenstein monster is uh, painted green, because there was, if you painted him deathly pale, uh, you couldn't see the details in his in his face and in the rest of the makeup at all. And the idea was he's supposed to look like a corpse. So the way to, ironically, they found that to get that corpse-like look was to paint him green. Um, but then people started seeing color photos from the set. And then we've, so ever since then, we've had the idea that the Frankenstein monster is green. And, oh, uh, interesting. But that's why. Yeah. And, and, you know, now that you said that, if you go back and look at the Adventure in Space and Time movie, there's uh, parts of the TARDIS that had the green tint to it. That's right. Yep. Yep. And it's, it, yeah, when we were seeing it in color, yeah. And some of it was this kind of, um, almost pastel green. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Okay. That's cool. I'm glad I asked yeah. that. Yeah. I, I do. I think it's very interesting. I, I, one of the films that I used to show in my intro cinema class is, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name of it anyway, but it, but it's a film that is, um, a sort of a fictionalized, well, very fictionalized telling of making the, the 1920s film Nosferatu. So we see these people on the set making this, and these uh, these uh, the film the German filmmakers they're always wearing these goggles like they're expecting sparks to come out of their camera or something. <laughs> and I always ask my students, can you can you think of any reason why they'd all have these goggles on? And some of them figure it out, and you know they go, mm. is it so they can see what the set looks and people look like in black and white? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> So, Clarence, I want to ask you on a transition real quick to the doctor himself. So you had the luxury of seeing the end of the war games, seeing once again the second doctor, and you immediately go into the third doctor. Question, what was your first impression of the third doctor? Oh, boy. Um <laughs> It doesn't feel like the doctor. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It's just something about it being devoid of the things that kind of you know, it's accessories, kind of things that make up the doctor. Um, I feel like that makes him feel a little bit different in this story, especially you know when you get into the latter latter half of the story. Uh, the first part of the story, it felt a lot like um, David Tennant's introduction, mm -hmm. actually. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I have to say that I loved how they explored, you know, this guy that they found um, and 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 um, with him being in the hospital, they explored him as an alien. And, you know, we got the, the <laughs> we got the x-rays of his chest and we got the blood sample taken. So all of that stuff. I liked seeing, you know, again, as in comparison to what we saw David Tennant. Now, as far as just his actual portray, uh, portrayal of the doctor, it it just didn't stick with me. And I'm not sure why, because it wasn't like he was doing anything out of the ordinary, but it just something just wasn't compelling about the performance or 
the lines he was given was given for the, mm-hmm. the, the episodes. Mm-hmm. So I have a theory, but I, before I get my theory, I want to hear what Lee says because I really have a theory. I'm glad you said what you did because I have a theory. Lee, what what do you say? Well, I'm thinking about our watching time in the Ronnie and trying to figure out the Seventh Doctor. You know, based on that too, and it's he's so unlike what he will ultimately become. It's really hard to tell. Um, and, and that struck me this time, too, is that we don't really get the third doctor in this, uh, maybe until the very, very, very end. But uh, I have often wondered, and maybe somebody like uh, Dave Cooper can can tell us, but John Pertwee was uh, was already very well known uh, He for the, by this audience, um, maybe more so than William Hartnell or Patrick Troughton. Um, because he was the, the star of a long running radio comedy series called the Navy Lark mm. and, um, in which he played a character named Pertwee. In fact, all of the major characters had the same names as their, the actors who played them, but, um, uh, funny, funny show. And, and he was a stage comedian and he had been, uh, played comic roles in movies. People knew him. They knew him as a comedian. Hmm. And I wonder if that's why. He does it in this episode and he'll do it in many serials later when something's, you know, strangling him or somebody's grabbed him from behind. He'll bug his eyes out and, you know, sometimes he'll cross his eyes and so on. (laughs) And I never liked that, but but maybe he thought it was worth it because it got a laugh. But I always thought, "Eh, I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, uh, but yeah, he, he I just have to wonder what people were thinking. Were they already on his side because they liked him, you know? Mm. Yeah. So, and so one of the first things we get is him is him hiding from uh yeah from the hospital brass and he gets in the shower and he's not just in taking getting a shower but he's got a shower cap on. Why? But you know <laughs> and he's singing yeah. while he's in the shower and I think probably a lot of people who knew John Pertwee already they would have thought that was hilarious. Mm. I don't know. So here's my theory and yeah. it's it's going to tie into what Clarence said about the doctor feeling a little bit off because, and I'm going to say again, this is another reason I'm so glad we're going back and seeing and reviewing some of these older episodes because it puts you in a different mindset. And that Mm. mindset gives me, I don't think, especially in those first appearances, first three episodes, maybe a little even into the fourth one to some degree, this didn't feel like Dr. Number Three to me. This felt like John Pertwee playing a Patrick Troughton's second doctor because there was a little bit of vocal mannerisms of some of the things that he said that, that said to me, you're trying to do a little bit of Pat, Patrick Troughton because I have never been able to try to do any of Troughton's, I mean, excuse me, any of Pertwee's lines because I never could kind of mimic his vocal tics. Whereas mm-hmm. I was listening to him say some of his lines and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then I'd back up. I was like, those kind of sound like Patrick Troughton just with you saying them. So I'm wondering if he hmm. was trying to project that as part of I'm still the doctor. Interesting. And knowing that he's in transition, he's correct because I, I noticed it less and less as the story went on. This was more of him first waking up, him first meeting the brigadier, him, Mm. you know, that first, especially, you know, the first and second episodes. But then by the end, it's more of what I'm used to 
But but go back and listen to some of those early scenes and see mm-hmm. if you notice the same thing because <laughs> it just seemed like I was I could shut my eyes and I could imagine Patrick Troughton there instead of him. That's a very interesting perspective. I and, and this you know this the, the those first I want to say it's in the second episode. I could be wrong. Um, has a line that I had never heard until somebody pointed it out to me. But one of the orderlies at the hospital says his face has settled down. Hmm. And uh, was it Nicole telling us this? I, I want to say that somebody had recently, sort of recently turned me onto this, was that it may be that the intent of the script, that this was an ambition that they had when they were writing this, was that what we were going to see first was a face that was somewhat Patrick Troughton somehow, and that we were going to finally get a morph into John Pertwee in the hospital. Oh, that would have been cool. Um, and then, you know, then there's the strike and everything else. And I, I, I think it just went by the wayside. And then that line of dialogue is still in the script. His face has settled down. <laughs> it kind of makes sense. Yeah, because he yeah, stumbles yeah. out of the TARDIS. Right. Still wearing the check pants and the um, swallowback coat, yeah. So what did you guys, speaking of the TARDIS, what did you guys think of how the TARDIS looked in this episode? It's going to be pretty shabby throughout the third and fourth Doctor's time. I, I always wondered why it looked like it's been painted 75 million times, and maybe because it had. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. What, how did that strike you, Clarence? Uh, didn't didn't really jump out at me one uh, way or another. <laughs> Um, it's a TARDIS. <laughs> it's just it's still the TARDIS. I, I know that one of the things we always have to remember uh, watching these is that um, that TV screens at this time still had even you know the new color ones. They they still had scan lines, and there weren't a lot of scan lines. So the image that we're seeing now, even while I'm complaining about how 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 grungy some of it looked, it would have been um, we're seeing so much more information than people really would have seen. Yeah. On their TV sets. Um, yeah. And, and, and I'll just add that, you know, this being not to be totally uh, <laughs> uh, missing the question. This this would be the first time, uh, you know, uh, viewers see the TARDIS in color on the show itself. Now, I don't know if there may have been mm-hmm. other places, you know, displays it somewhere that they can go see that it was in a certain color. Right. How often was Blue Box mentioned uh, prior to this, was it pretty well known that it was a blue telephone box or were just all the telephone police boxes of that time, police boxes of that time were blue, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. The ones still in service in 1963, they were, they were, they were blue. So yeah, okay. people would have seen them. They would have, they would have known it was blue, but, uh, yeah. I had a friend from Scotland who told me that, uh, that in Scotland they were red. Hmm. I just a bit of trivia there. Anyway, <laughs> so, so let's talk about Liz for a moment. You oh. know, so comparing her with Jamie and Zoe and seeing her come in as this self-assured, you know, scientist in her own right. Initial thoughts. Did she make an impression or was she given the opportunity to make an impression? And Clarence, won't you go first? Was she did you connect with her at all in this story? Yeah, I didn't at all. I mean, to me, she didn't even feel like a companion in this story. Of course, once we get to what becomes the doctor's office at unit, you know, you see it start to mail a little bit thin. But I never really 
felt that she seemed like a true companion. And maybe that's maybe there's something people watching this series being stranded on Earth. Uh, maybe that's something that everybody watching it has to come to grips with or get used to the fact that they're just there, <laughs> you know, it just feels a little bit different. What about you, Lee? I, I have always disliked Liz Shaw and, um, uh, I, I really wanted to give her a chance this time, largely because our friend Nicole is a, is a big fan. And I thought, well, you know, that doesn't come from nowhere. And I realized I, 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 I'm not sure what I've been judging her so harshly for. She's when we meet her, she's she's a skeptic because she's a scientist. She wants yep. evidence. And the brigadier is telling her what sounds like a fairy tale. And so she doesn't believe it until she experiences it and can, you know, <laughs> and then she's on board. I don't know the, why I thought there was something about her, her manner or something that I just didn't like. But uh, no, I, 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 I was quite uh, I, I was really with her this time. And I love that the script gives her the chance to save the doctor in the end. And, uh, you know, through her own smarts. I mean, she has to take that thing apart and put it back together again so that it works. And she does it under stress. And he doesn't um, die of having his eyes popped out. <laughs> So, you know, this has never been a character that I've connected with, but th there's an equal amount of this has never been a character that I've disconnected with. I've just never had an affinity for her character. And I don't know if it's what you guys just said or if it was the fact of there was not a real place for her, because if you see how she is such an independent forceful character and no disrespect to the character that comes next in any way, because number one, the actor who portrays it is a marvelous, marvelous, kind and generous person. <laughs> but you go from her to Joe Grant, who goes back in the opposite direction, completely like doing a 180 and mm -hmm. putting you totally opposite of what she is. That's right. She's about as unlike Liz Shaw as she can possibly be. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I am going to be brutally honest in saying there were not a lot of story points because we've already said that there were things in it that we found as being a little bit boring. Yeah. But I did want to mention briefly the Autons and the nesting consciousness because mm -hmm. they play important roles later on in the series, specifically mm -hmm. in 2005 in Rose, when <laughs> we see a new version of the nesting consciousness. Right. Um, so initial thoughts of the Autons, let's take them first. What did you guys think of this plastic creature that basically mannequins coming to life? What did you guys think of that concept? I'm waiting for Clarence. Me too. Uh, yeah, well, I, know, I thought it was interesting. I do. So is this the first time we see the Autons? Yes. This is the, yep. And our introduction to the idea of the great intelligence and the nesting consciousness and everything. Okay, well, that's going to make my point that much better. Yeah. <laughs> I think in black and white, it would have been harder to pull them off. Hmm. Not necessarily when they're look because you have like a few versions. I feel in these episodes, you have ones that look more like you know the mannequins. You have some that look more like real people. I think the ones that look more like real people may be a little bit harder to um, distinguish in black and white. Uh, if I'm if I'm analyzing that correctly, uh, so as far as it goes, I thought they were interesting. Um, and again, I like how they 
came down from space and you know, I thought all of that was cool and interesting, but for some reason they although interesting, it just didn't grab me at all. And it 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 just felt boring. We kept going back to the office and you have this I forget the office worker's name, you know. Yeah, uh exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it just felt boring. Uh, that's that's kind of where I end with that. All right. Lee, let's say you yeah, I'm the same way. I so that by the time you know the all this action happens with the autons, you got to be saying finally <laughs> get some people on the run and break through the shop windows and um and of course the mannequins breaking through the shop windows has now become almost like a meme of of Doctor Who. You've got to have the autons break through a window at one point and, and the store mannequins and that, that kind of thing. I, 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 do I wish that there had been some kind of a bigger threat for the for the third Doctor's first adventure? Or I don't know. I just it, it's it's hard to take the Auton attack seriously. Um, it bugs me when um, they're uh, the the human who they've uh, co opted says uh, the Autons are indestructible. I think no, they're not. If they're plastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on <laughs> you know <laughs> so it's just sort of story logic things like that and i don't know so i don't know if this is a good thing for the story but i think it's going to fall in the it's a bad thing for the story category and what that is is what i like most about these is not from the story it's the mm. fact that the autons the store dummies appeared in rows mm. we have the Autons and uh, with the handgun, as I call it, mm-hmm. we yeah, see that, that. Cool. it's yeah. a handgun. Yeah, we see the handgun, and we will mm-hmm. see the handgun. No spoilers here, but we will see the handgun later in the Eleventh Doctor's era. So mm-hmm. everything I like about them, honestly, other than yes, they were in classic, are tied right. to New Who. Well, the, when we introduce the master, we'll also get the autons and, and all of that stuff again, too. So, yeah. Indeed. And you know what? Maybe their story was gelled a little bit better that time. And and I don't know what it was with this one, because we've reviewed that one that inter- uh-huh. introduced the master. And we liked that episode. Yeah. You know, all three of us did. So. Mm-hmm. All right, so I want to ask, well, since we've gotten to the rear end of the conversation, (laughs) I will say, what did you guys think of the nesting consciousness? And I keep saying that, I don't mean to interrupt, but I keep saying that because it's Lee Shackelford's fault for bringing that to our attention. Uh, yeah, I, it's funny that this time it never struck me before that the the image of the nesting consciousness that we're presented with really looked to me like the the guy. What he really has is a commercial on his TV um, advertising some kind of a, a, a treatment for hemorrhoids. <laughs> <laughs> and they're depicting graphically what the <laughs> what preparation H can do for you. But I think, well, I. I don't know if we're supposed to be terrified by this. It's it would be uncomfortable, but anyway. But yeah, so that unfortunate uh, video effect uh, is one thing. But uh, um, but the other thing is that we uh, it's really hard for us looking back now, back to uh, Spearhead from Space. To we've 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 had such interesting depictions of the nesting consciousness uh, since then. Um, a particular, my favorite is in Rose, and I, I, 
you know, so once you've got that in your mind, uh, anything else is going to be disappointment. The tentacles that I guess were borrowed from a stage version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, perhaps, mm. or something. I don't know <laughs> what they are, but it's a very unconvincing effect. And, and, and John Pertwee's uh, grimacing doesn't help it any. Uh, <laughs> so it's just, I don't know what that's supposed to have to do with the consciousness. Well, see, are, that... they, are, the, are those plastic tentacles? <laughs> we, we're told that it's not, a, it doesn't have a corporeal form. Thank you. Then Thank there are you. tentacles and I don't. Yeah, I I wrote that down. It was like, you just said that it is non-existent, you know, it's not corporeal. It doesn't have a body. (laughs) And and then the next thing we know, here comes the tentacles. Yes. Well, it doesn't have a body, just tentacles. (laughs) (sighs) I don't (laughs) Oh, wow, this episode. So. Yeah. I guess. When we're talking about about cast and characters here, we've really skipped past the brig. And I'd like to back up just a second to talk about uh, Nicholas Courtney here. He's he's the glue, really, if you think about it from the viewer's viewpoint. Everything is different about this, except this character that we've seen a couple of times before uh, in Adventures with the Second Doctor. So he's really the only one who knows that we, that we have any chance of recognizing or, or hanging on to. And uh, it struck me this time, for the first time ever, that the formula for this show has always been that we're that the doctor is going to be older and kind of odd looking and we need to have a handsome young man and so it could be ian or it could be um jamie or you know mm-hmm. any of those guys and it could be a pretty girl so the the lineup that they're building here is that the pretty girl is going to be liz and and the, the doctor is going to be john pertwee hoo-hoo. and so the handsome young man is brigadier lethbridge stewart True, and I've just I've just never thought of him as being the the eye candy guy before. So I'm trying to kind of put on you know a, a different um, you know mindset while watching this, and 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 it really hit me for the first time. He really was a strikingly handsome man in these days. He, you know, I, I could see why that was the thinking. I thought, no, he this is a good looking fella, and, and and I guess the part of why that's never struck me before is that he is such a well, he's the brigadier. You know, <laughs> that it's, he's just got this ramrod uh, in his back, and uh, and that's his character, you know. But it's a uh, and the doctor can really, really get at odds with him sometimes. But but their relationship is largely affectionate. Uh, so it, it it is interesting. It's an interesting trio, and uh, I guess I'd never really until this time I'd never really thought about it that way. But that's this is the same formula the show has always used. It's just that now the handsome young man character is nominally in charge. Hmm. Yeah. Nomin- nominally. <laughs> and, and like just to come in on, on uh, well, to piggyback off of what you just said, it felt like the first, what, two thirds to half of this uh, arc felt mm-hmm. like the unit slash brigadier show. <laughs> I well, guess yeah. that's why it yeah. feels so weird to me. It didn't really feel like a doctor. I mean, series or episodes, it, it just felt like it was mostly unit, mostly the yeah, brigadier. That's right. And and they're getting us ready for the fact that it's going to be like that for years and years now. It's, it's, uh, but it's, it's always the struggle for the brigadier to keep it the unit show, but it never, <laughs> from here on, it never works out that way. The doctor's going to do whatever he wants to do, but he can't leave. And, and did either of you notice that while we saw the TARDIS, 
We never went inside. This was one time we did not see that control room. That that struck me only because I had forgotten that he tells Liz what the inside is like, and she says, oh, come on. And I thought, well, this is easily fixed. But he doesn't take her in there. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, look, let's just step over here and I'll show you. But he, And I thought, well, that's odd. Why does <laughs> – mm. I wouldn't be able to resist that if I were him. Yeah, also interesting, the big, Brigadier has the key but can't get in. Yeah. Um, uh, it, what did he say? It was some – uh, what some type of filter on uh, getting in the door or oh, using the key? Kind of like a exactly. bio lock or something. Yeah, is I couldn't it, remember if you actually explained that or not. But yeah, is that a thing? That's my first time hearing that. Uh, that has been mentioned elsewhere. Well, remember there was one time in the rings of Acta whatever yeah, in uh, series seven that the TARDIS wouldn't, even though Clara had a key, the TARDIS wouldn't let Clara in. Hmm. Yeah. I forgot about that one. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of, but yeah. Could it be that the reason why we don't go in the TARDIS is for the same reason that we were talking a little bit earlier? It was all painted green and they didn't want to break that perception filter that the audience Mm -hmm. has seen Mm -hmm. for it being white. I think that's probably close to it. I think the truth is that that was in the studio that is all controlled by video. Ah, well said. Yeah, yeah, I think that's – yeah, because the video cameras would have been still in there on the floor and you would have to be a union operator to touch them. Got you. That makes sense. So, yeah. I had never thought about that until you said it. Yeah. I bet that's that's why they don't go inside. Huh. Oh, well. Well, as a compliment to the Brigadier, honestly, this was – he – was one of the reasons or one of the main reasons I wanted to review this other than it being a regeneration post regeneration story. I just like the opportunity to review a brigadier story. I just mm-hmm. wish that I would have remembered that this did not have the strengths that I remembered it having. So yeah. <laughs> any other thoughts, notes or anything that you guys had that we've not brought up that you wanted to go over? Nothing comes to mind. Mr. Brown. Mm. Uh, if I remember his closing, was didn't he say Smith, John Smith, in a very oh. James Bondish way? It's yeah. the last words of the episode. Yeah, I was like, no, <laughs> this isn't Doctor Who. Yeah, but but that really was this was sort of John Pertwee's influence on this is that when when they they talked to him about playing the Doctor, uh, he said, and remember what year this is, you know, he 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 said. Okay, but I wanted to, I wanted to be James Bond. That's who I want to be. Mm. So, um, Venetian Pluto. Exactly. We're we're gonna have some hand to hand combat, and I'm gonna be, you know, uh, man about town and all this stuff. But um, but you know, for tea time. And I'm going to have jazzy car. Yes, I'm gonna have a jazzy mm-hmm. car that that doesn't do tricks or anything. No. Still, no. <laughs> and I'm gonna name it after a cow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any any other any other items? All right. So my final comment was that I wrote down after watching the entire series or story was this felt like a pilot episode for me. And what I mean by that is so often when you watch the pilot episode and then you watch the follow up episodes and you see subtle changes to maybe how a character dresses or subtle changes to the cast, meaning there were some people in the first episode pilot that aren't back 
or have been recast or whatever for the series going forward. Because other than Liz and the Brig, people like Sergeant Benton and Mike Yates, we don't see head nor hair of them in yeah. this story. And this general that they introduce, I don't think we see again in later stories. I may be wrong, but no, I don't, no, I don't think no. we do. So this felt very pilot episode to me. Yeah. All right. That's right, especially once you point out that uh, we're, we have yet to uh, to introduce some of the characters who will become, uh, yeah, the regulars. Yes. Yeah. So, gentlemen, favorite scene. Did you have a favorite scene? <laughs> you know what would crack me up this time in a way that I don't think I'd ever thought about before is the uh, the poacher who's got one of the the uh, the nesting spheres in his shed and this whole argument with his wife and. He, he he finally opens the box and he's getting ready to reach back into the shed. And for no reason at all, his wife comes back out, <laughs> like out of a bird out of a cuckoo clock. Like, what are you doing out there? <laughs> Get in the house, woman. <laughs> Not bringing that in the house. <laughs> exactly. Not bringing this in my house. It just cracked me up that, that this was a picture of their whole relationship. She's grudgingly gone to the house, but she's going to come right back because she knows what he's doing. <laughs> she knows he's doing something he's not supposed to. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny little moment. You know, I will say I did think that they were unnecessary as a whole. I think that was some of the padding that I felt. But mm -hmm. I will add that I found their house to look interesting. The concept yeah. of you have to kind of duck in to get in the door. Yep. And I I, as a tall guy in Britain, I can I can vouch for the fact that um, they don't make the doors tall enough for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, some of these houses are hundreds of years old. I mean, that one was a Tudor style house with a thatched roof. Um, people were smaller back then. And um, yeah, I, I've had to stoop and duck into <laughs> a lot of places there. But I well, well I thought about both of you when they were walking yeah. through and I was like. I don't think that would be a location that the three of us want to visit. <laughs> There's certainly places that would have uh, Clarence's forehead permanently embedded into them. <laughs> wasn't watching what's going. All right. So, Clarence, did you have a scene or anything that stood out to you? I think uh, maybe my favorite one of this episode was when the doctor was in there looking at the x-rays. He was like, Who's been playing around with X-rays? I see two hearts, you know, <laughs> something mm -hmm. to that effect. That's and right. he goes to actually chastise the X-rayers or the X-ray technicians about the <laughs> the two hearts, you know, thinking they're playing around. Then he gets a call and he gets chastised about the blood. So I love that little, you know, uh, thing right there where they were kind of trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Cool, cool. So I really didn't have a favorite scene. If I had to create one in my head it would be the very first even though it did look a little awkward when we see the doctor fall out of the TARDIS for the sole purpose of the fact that this is the first colorized episode I know that's kind of a cop-out but I'm going with it that's my yeah. favorite scene because it's the first colorized episode and it wasn't one that was wiped you know so there you yeah. go all right favorite quote did any of you, either of you, have a favorite spearhead from space quote? I don't know a favorite, but uh, I there were a couple of times where I just sort of sat up in my chair because I feel like I know a lot about space and space travel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Lethbridge Stewart uh, 
when he's kind of lecturing Liz at the beginning, he says, in the last decade, we've been sending probes deeper and deeper into space. We've drawn attention to ourselves, Miss Shaw. We haven't really, by this point, been that far out into space. <laughs> I, I wanted to say, well, if they were already in Earth orbit, then somebody may have noticed us, yes. But, um, <laughs> you know. Hey, man, it was deep back then, man. Come it, on It now. was, yeah, it's all, it is, it's all relative. But, yeah, but, but things like Voyager are still a few years away. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then later on, she says, well, you know, not all meteorites reach the Earth. And I thought, uh, no, by definition, a meteorite is a meteor that reaches the Earth. That's what a meteorite is. So, ugh. I wish the doctor was here to <laughs> hear her say that. <laughs> not all meteorites reach the What? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> all right clarence brown what say you i don't think i have one other than uh um, smith john smith that i you know, <laughs> kind of cop-out answer that i mentioned before okay. <laughs> i gave a cop-out answer if i can do it you can do it too there you go all right so i actually did have a quote that i found and it's not from the doctor it actually is from the brigadier and it's similar to what uh Lee was saying, but the brigadier says, what you don't understand is that there might. There is a remote possibility that outside your cozy little world, other things could exist. And I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. It's it's really mansplainy, but you know, fortunately he's not wrong. <laughs> but, but you know, we are making progress. They did not ask Liz to go wait somewhere while they went and did whatever. She got to come and do whatever with them. You got to, you really got to hand that. And you know, you remind me of another thing too, is that um, it would be tempting for the brigadier to be dismissive of her because she's a woman and he totally does not do that. And then the general who's kind of, you know, from a general, you know, from a different, you know, different time, right? He comes in and the first thing he does is say, oh, it's good to have a lovely face around the place, you know, and the brigadier calls him on it. He says, she's much more than a pretty face, sir. And and just as a side note, it goes. She's got a great body too. <laughs> true. No, well, no. well, just as a side note, it is. I think they did very good casting. You know, X number of years, however, forty something years later, when they cast Kate Stewart, because she just so much going back and watching this, and having recently watched an episode that she was on, she really does a good job of doing some of the. Brigadiers, I'm all about business type mannerisms, and you know, kudos to her for doing a good job as the brigadier's daughter. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, final rating, and we'll wrap this thing up. Final rating, Clarence. Since you just enjoyed this so much, I'm going to start with you. Final rating. What say you? Hmm. Man, this one is is going to be hard for me. Um, I will give it two shoes under the pillow. Out of five. That's all I got. <laughs> I did not enjoy this episode at all. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I had to struggle to get through it. Um, just didn't hold my attention. It was interesting for being, you know, the third's first episode. Um, and a few, you know, good tidbits in there. But for the most part, I just did not enjoy this. All right. Nothing wrong with that. Lee Shackelford, what say you? I'm going to be generous and, and give it two and a half frilly shirts. Okay. So, any any particular reason? No. Okay. <laughs> Perfectly <laughs> fine. So I'm going to 
meet you guys in the middle and give it 2.25 red lined jackets that also were similarly worn by the 12th doctor and his first season. So because of that, I'll give it 2.25, but for no other other reason, I'm just going to give it (laughs) 2.25. So, gentlemen, one final question. And, Lee, I'll start with you. I've been directing to Clarence several times, and I will direct this one to you. Where else might you be found on the Internet? I've been working on my personal website, and so I'm going to point people there because it points you in all the other directions as well. And that is shackelfordfreelance.com. Awesome. Awesome. That's awesome. All right. Clarence Brown, where else might you be found on the Internet? I'm just going to give a parting gift, and that's going to be the Orphan Black cast is going to reunite for a two-episode virtual reading, which will take place on their face, the official Orphan Black Facebook page on May 17th at 12 p.m. Pacific time. So if you're an Orphan Black fan, uh, live table read. Yeah. Okay, so let me that? let me just ask you, so are all the sisters going to be reading? Uh, I know they said three of them. No, four of them would be there. But, I mean, it's all Tatiana, so uh, she's yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, but I was thinking that would be so, – well, it would be so cool to see her visually transition. But if they would have not done it live and had it recorded, that would have been even more so cool. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, that is very cool. Um I will throw out, if anyone, since you said parting gifts, I will throw out because I've become obsessed literally – can't stop watching this show. If you like crime dramas and you like British crime dramas, Vera, V-E-R-A, look it up. It's on Amazon. It's on Acorn TV. It's on um, BritBox. Look it up. Like I said, I'm totally obsessed with watching this show. So V-E-R-A. And I will say thank you again, gentlemen. Um, unfortunately, we can't like them all, but we can agree that some are better than others. So with that, thank you again. Thanks everyone for listening and we will be back next time. You've been listening to the Discussing Network. Find out more at discussingnetwork.com.